Chapter 15 of Marjorie Dean, High School Freshman by Pauline Lester. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Ashley Jane. Chapter 15 Marjorie's Wonderful Discovery. What transpired in Miss Archer's private office on that memorable morning when the freshman team visited her in a body was a subject that agitated high school circles for at least a week afterward. Other than the team, no one could furnish any authentic information as to what had actually been said and done but the amazing report that Miss Archer had disbanded the freshman basketball team was on everyone's tongue. Whether or not another team would be selected, no one knew. That would depend wholly upon Miss Archer's decision. That the members of the team had offended seriously, there could be no doubt. As for the ex-members themselves, they were absolutely mute on the subject. Among themselves, however, they had a great deal to say, and one and all held Marjorie Dean responsible for their downfall. When Miss Archer had commanded their presence in her office that eventful morning, it was not in connection with the conflicting statements of Ellen Seymour and Mignon LaSalle. Satisfied that Mignon was the real offender, she had read that young woman a lesson on untruthfulness and treachery in the presence of the team that left her white with mortification, her stormy black eyes alone betraying her rage. Then Miss Archer proceeded to the other business at hand, which was an inquiry into their reason for requesting Marjorie Dean's resignation from the team. One by one, the four girls, with the exception of Helen Thornton, were questioned separately and acknowledged, in shamefaced fashion, that Marjorie was a really good player. Then why, Miss Archer had asked sharply, did you ask her to resign? There had been no answer to this pertinent question, and then had followed their principal's rebuke, sharp and stinging. It is not often that I feel impelled to interfere in your games, she had said. Not long since I refused to listen to something Miss Arnold tried to tell me. But when several heartless girls deliberately combine to humiliate and discomfort a companion under the flimsy pretext of the good of the team, it is time to call a halt. Four girls were prime movers in this contemptible plan. One girl was an accessory and therefore equally guilty. In justice to the traditions of Sanford High School, the girl who has suffered at your hands, and in defence of my own self-respect, these offenders must be punished. So I am going to disband your team and forbid any one of you to play basketball again until I am satisfied that you know something of the first principles of honour and fair play. However, I shall not forbid basketball to the freshmen. The innocent shall not suffer with the guilty. A new team will be chosen which I trust will be a credit rather than a detriment to our high school. You are dismissed. 
five girls whose faces were an open indication of their chagrin had left the principal's office in a far more chastened frame of mind than when they had entered it miss archer's arraignment had been a most unpleasant surprise and in discussing it among themselves afterward helen thornton had caused mignon to pour forth a torrent of biting words by saying sulkily that if mignon had let ellen seymour alone everything would have been all right do you mean to say that you believe those miserable girls mignon had cried out and helen had answered with marked sarcasm no i believe what i saw with my own eyes and i wish i'd never heard of your old team i'm ashamed to think i ever listened to you and had walked away from the group with a sore and penitent heart, never to return to their circle again. All this was, of course, kept strictly secret by the other four ex-members, who joined hands and vowed solemnly that they would weather the gale together. The disbanding of the team by Miss Archer and Ellen Seymour's vindication could not be hushed up, however, and despite their protests that Miss Archer was unfair and that the statements of certain other girls were wholly unreliable, they lost ground with their classmates. Marjorie, too, had been made to feel the weight of their displeasure, for they took pains to circulate the report that it was she who had told tales to the principal and thus brought them to grief several of the sophomores including ellen seymour heatedly denied the rumour and a number of freshmen also took up the cudgels in her behalf jerry irma and constance stood firmly by her and although the poor little lieutenant was far more hurt over the allegation than she would show she kept a brave face to the front and tried to ignore the ill-natured thrusts launched chiefly by muriel and mignon but in the midst of this uncomfortable season marjorie made a wonderful discovery it was quite by chance that she made it and it concerned constance stevens Although the Mary girl had apparently grown very fond of Marjorie and had almost entirely dropped her strange cloak of reserve, she had never invited the girl who had so graciously befriended her to her home. From the words of vehement protest which Constance had spoken on that day when Marjorie had followed her and protested that they become friends, she had partly understood the other girl's position in regard to her family and had tactfully avoided the subject ever afterward. She had talked the matter over with her captain and they had decided to respect Constance's reticence and keep religiously away from anything bordering on the discussion of her family. It was on a crisp November afternoon, several days before Thanksgiving, that Marjorie made her discovery. As she walked into the living room, her books on her arm, her cheeks pink from the sharp frosty air, her mother hung up the telephone with, Marjorie, do you think Constance would like to go with us to the theatre tonight? Your father has just telephoned me that he has four tickets. She'd love it. I know she would. I'll hurry straight down to her house and ask her. Marjorie dropped her books on the table with a joyful thump. Very well. 
but I wish you would wait until I finish my letter. Then you can post it on your way there. Did Nora bake chocolate cake today? asked Marjorie irrelevantly. Yes. There was a rush of light feet from the room. Three minutes later Marjorie returned, a huge piece of chocolate layer cake in her hand. It's the best ever, she declared between bites. By the time the cake was eaten, the letter was ready. Hurry, dear, her mother called after her. We shall have an early dinner. It did not occur to Marjorie until within sight of the house where Constance lived that she was an uninvited guest. What a queer-looking little house it was. Long ago it had been painted a pale grey with white trimmings, but now it was a dingy, hopeless colour that defied description. A child's dilapidated tricycle stood on the rickety porch, which was approached by a flight of three unstable-looking steps. Her mind centred upon her errand, Marjorie paid small attention to her surroundings. She bounded up the steps, searching with alert eyes for a bell. Finding none, she doubled her fist to knock, but paused suddenly with upraised arm. From within the house came the vibrant notes of a violin mingled with the soft accompaniment of a piano. Schubert serenade, breathed Marjorie delightedly, lowering her arm. I simply must listen. Suddenly a voice took up the plaintive strain. It was so high and sweet and clear that the listener caught her breath in sheer amazement. She stood spellbound while the wonderful voice sang on and on to the last note of the exquisite serenade that seemed to end in a long-drawn sigh. Marjorie knocked lightly, but no one responded. The singers had begun again. This time it was Nevin's Oh That We Two Were Maying. She listened again. Then, to her surprise, the door was gently opened. Before her, stood the tiny figure of a boy whose great black eyes looked curiously into hers. Laying his finger upon his lips, he gravely motioned with his other hand for her to enter. Then, as he limped away from the door, Marjorie saw he was a cripple. Marjorie stepped noiselessly into the room, her eyes on the piano. A man was seated before it. She could not see his face, but she noted that he had an enormous shock of snow-white hair. At one side of him stood another old man, his thin cheek resting lovingly against his violin, his whole soul intent upon the flood of melody he was bringing forth, while on the other side of the pianist, her quiet face, fairly transfigured, stood Constance, pouring out her very heart in song. End of chapter 15. Recording by Ashley Jane.